This morning, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 5. If you'll open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 5. If you're using a pew Bible in front of you, that's going to be on page 228. If you don't have a Bible of your own, that is our gift to you. There's also Bibles out on uh, the table by the front door. If you don't have a Bible, please take one with you today. Several years ago, I spent uh, a couple days in India on a short-term mission trip. You heard me right, a couple days. We were in transit to and from India for longer than we were on the ground in India. I do not recommend that. Um, The good news is we didn't have time to get jet-lagged, but it was a very, very short trip. Um, And while we were there, the group of us that were going, we met and talked to a man who seemed interested in following Jesus. But it became apparent while talking to him that his desire was simply to add Jesus to his pantheon. He wanted to set Jesus up next to Vishnu or Shiva or any other number of gods. He wanted to add Jesus to his collection. So we had a conversation with him about the one true God who has revealed himself in the Bible, who has revealed himself fully and finally in his son, Jesus Christ. We shared with him how he is the creator of heaven and earth, how he rightfully demands we worship him alone, and he commands us not to make idols. In India, the culture was different, the food was different, the language was different. Certainly seeing Hindu worship was different. Walking around the city and seeing people offering things like fruit and flowers to little statues in boxes is probably not going to be your experience in downtown Tuscaloosa. In many ways, in India, I felt like a stranger in a strange land, a man in exile. In our passage today, the Ark of the Covenant has been captured, and it's been taken like a trophy into enemy territory. The pagan Philistines believe that they and their god, Dagon, have defeated Israel as well as Israel's god. But as we'll see, things will go badly for them because the Lord is acting in sovereign judgment for his glory and for the deliverance of his people. Let's look together in 1 Samuel chapter 5. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold." Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. 
But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of, the God, ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Let's pray. Father, we pray in accord with Jesus that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. You are the one true God to whom all praise, honor, and glory is due now and forever. Amen. As we've seen repeatedly over the last few weeks, 1 Samuel is taking place during the time of the judges, when there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was a time of moral depravity and spiritual darkness, out of which the Lord would establish the light of his kingdom, initially in David and ultimately in Jesus. And the first embers of hope on the ash heap in 1 Samuel, remind us of the Christmas story. A godly woman with no expectation of having a child is visited by the grace of God, and a child is born who will bring the word of God to his people. Enter Samuel. In the opening chapters of 1 Samuel, the Lord has been bringing judgment on Israel for their sin, and the wicked priesthood is squarely in his crosshairs. Meanwhile, Samuel was established as a true prophet. So as Eli and his line were decreasing, Samuel was increasing. But, interestingly, in the events surrounding the loss to the Philistines in chapter 4, our passage today in chapter 5 with the ark in Philistia, and next week in chapter 6 with the ark being returned, Samuel is completely absent from the narrative. It seems that the Israelite elders conspired with the wicked priests rather than the prophet Samuel in chapter 4. And they tried and failed spectacularly to use the ark as a good luck charm in battle against the Philistines. And so in God's judgment, Hophni and Phinehas were killed. Tens of thousands of Israelites fell in battle. The ark was captured, and Eli fell over, broke his neck, and died when he heard the news. Chapter 4 we saw last week ended with the premature birth of Eli's grandson, named Ichabod, by Eli's daughter-in-law as she died. Ichabod's name means something like, where is glory? And we saw that there's some irony in wordplay going on here. Ichabod's mother is probably representative of Israel in general in believing that the glory of Israel had gone into exile, that it was literally gone. So on the one hand, the ungodly and gloriously fat priesthood of Israel has now fallen under the weight of God's glorious judgment. But God, will see, has superintended all of this, even the capture of the ark, to display his glory, sovereignty, and saving power. In chapter 5 before us today, there's basically two movements in the text. Verses 1 through 5 dealing with the Lord's triumph over Dagon, and verses 6 through 12 that deal with the Lord's judgment on the Philistines. 
Look with me in verses 1 through 5. We will see the Lord in triumph. The Lord in triumph. Verse 1 says that the Philistines brought the ark from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And it's interesting that all of these events started in Ebenezer. Chronologically speaking, it seems that Ebenezer has not even been given this name yet. Ebenezer, we talked a little bit about this last week, means stone of help. And it's not going to be given that name until the Israelites actually defeat the Philistines in chapter 7. It wasn't until then when Samuel set up a stone and named the place Ebenezer, reminding God's people of God's help. And thus it was called Ebenezer. But lately, it seems like the Lord is actually helping the Philistines. God refused to be manipulated by the pagan superstition of his people who bore his name, and so he handed Israel over to the Philistines while bringing judgment down on Eli and his family. After being captured, it says the ark went from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Ashdod was a city near the Mediterranean coast, and it was possibly the greatest of the five Philistine cities, which were Ashdod, Gath, Ekron, Gaza, and Ashkelon. And the ark would travel through three of those five cities before being returned to Israel, which we will consider next week. So the ark goes from Ebenezer to Ashdod, where it was put in the house or the temple of Dagon. Dagon was the chief deity of the Philistines. It seems that he was considered by them to be the father of the gods. He was their heavyweight champion. We don't know much about the meaning of his name, uh, but in any case, there are a few mentions of Dagon in the Bible, specifically in Judges 16, when, as you'll, you may remember, Samson was captured by the Philistines, taken to a house of Dagon like a trophy before he pulled the house down on himself and everyone who was there. 1 Samuel 5 is the second mention of Dagon here in the passage before us today. And the other is in 1 Chronicles 10, when after Saul, the first king of Israel, was killed in battle against the Philistines, his head was mounted inside a temple of Dagon. Again, like a trophy. Taking defeated enemies, or in this case their gods, and putting them on display in the temple was a wartime practice during this time. And the belief was that if if you held someone's ruler, or in this case, their God, as they saw the ark as a sign of the presence of the God of Israel, to hold the enemy's God was to have completely conquered them. It helps explain Eli's shock when he heard the news of the ark being captured. It helps explain Eli's daughter-in-law's dismay at the news of the ark being captured. At first glance, it may not seem like it to you, but this is probably one of the lowest moments in all of Israel's history in the Old Testament. It looks as if God has left them. It looks as if he was unable or unwilling to defend himself and his people against Dagon and his. So to set the stage for this showdown, the Lord has already begun to deal with the question of who is the real heavyweight? Who is the glorious one? We saw previously in 1 Samuel that it was the priesthood that was meant to display the glory of God to and among the people. But instead they got fat on the Lord's food offerings and they were only heavyweights in a quite literal sense. The Lord saw to it that Hophni and Phinehas were killed in battle and he delivered the knockout punch to Eli who fell over, broke his neck and died. But in the process, God allowed the ark to be captured by the Philistines 
for them to put it on display as a sign of their victory, not just over Israel, but over him. So the Philistines have routed Israel in battle, and they have taken the ark. They have completely defeated Israel, and they now believe that their god, Dagon, is superior to the god of Israel. And to demonstrate this, they take the ark into the temple of Dagon, and to add insult to injury, they set it up beside and most likely beneath the idol of Dagon. In their minds, the God of Israel was completely subdued, and now he could only serve the purposes of the truly glorious Dagon. We'll see in our passage today that they were quite wrong. We may not know much about the name of Dagon, but we do know about the name of the Lord. The name of the God, if God as he has revealed it in the Bible, is Yahweh. Yahweh. And it's related to the Hebrew verb that means I am. He simply is. His name indicates that he is the eternal, self-sufficient, glorious, only true God who needs no one and nothing. Hear how Yahweh is compared to idols in Psalm 115. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, they have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Chapters 4 through 6 of 1 Samuel, often called the Ark Narrative, highlight all of this, that God in heaven does what he pleases in smashing man-made idols and overpowering those who bow down to them. Look back at our text before you today. I want you to notice the similarities between the Israelites and the Philistines. Look at verse 2. It says the Philistines took and brought the ark. Verse 3. They took and placed Dagon in his place. In verse 8, they brought the ark to Gath. Eventually, things are going to get so bad that their only alternative is to take and bring the ark, put it on a cart, and send it away. Notice what the Israelites did in 1 Samuel 4, verse 4. They took and brought the ark into battle. In the aftermath of all of this, they're going to take it and bring it somewhere else as they lament after the Lord. I think the author of 1 Samuel intends for us to see just how alike the Philistines and the Israelites are. And it helps us to understand God's judgment on them both. God's people here are living just like their pagan neighbors, who think that God can be owned, that you can literally put God in a box. It's ironic that the Ten Commandments, which were kept inside the ark, had been so ignored by Israel that you couldn't tell them apart from any other nation around them. The ones who were meant to be a light to the nations were now living in utter darkness. So the scene is set, Yahweh, the great I Am, versus Dagon on Dagon's home turf. This here, verses 1 through 5, is the real battle of chapters 4 through 6 in 1 Samuel. Yahweh versus Dagon. Even though everyone thinks that Dagon and the Philistines have already won. Put your eyes on verse 3. While the ark had been put in a place of subservience to Dagon, in the next morning, it's Dagon who's bowing in adoration before the ark of God. We read this at home this week around the table, and when we got to this part of the text, my kids laughed out loud at the thought of Dagon falling over and having to be picked back up. 
And uh, I actually think that that is the right response to this from the people of God. This is supposed to be funny. Yahweh, to use a boxing analogy, is throwing uppercuts and Dagon's corner man has to pick him up off the mat. This should be humorous to you. And the next day, it's happened again, only this time Dagon's head and his hands have been cut off and they're lying there on the threshold. Notice how God has responded to Dagon in quite the same way the Philistines have responded to God. It's a direct challenge to the Philistines taking the ark into the temple. We saw that one wartime practice was setting up your enemy or his God in your temple as a sign of your victory. Another wartime practice during this time was cutting off the heads of defeated enemies. We already mentioned the Philistines cut off Saul's head in 1 Chronicles and they mount it in a temple of Dagon. Eventually in the story of the Old Testament, we're going to get to David cutting off the head of Goliath. It's symbolic of the victory to remove the head of your enemy at this time. So by putting the ark in the temple, the Philistines were effectively saying, Dagon has triumphed over Yahweh. So in turn, the Lord says, oh really? And cuts off Dagon's head. This theme of judgment on the head actually began back in chapter 4. Notice that judgment came on Eli as he fell over, broke his neck, and died at the city gate. And now Dagon suffers essentially the same fate here at the temple gate or the temple threshold. I think we're meant to see a connection in how God is dealing out judgment here. Israel's wicked priesthood has been overthrown as it gives way to Samuel. And now Dagon too is left with no power, no authority, no wisdom, and no means of helping the Philistines. This entire section of 1 Samuel is supposed to remind us of the Exodus. Back in 1 Samuel 4, the Philistines trembled at the thought of going up against the divine power that was responsible for overthrowing the Egyptians. God's reputation, or God's glory, if you will, had preceded him. The name of God, Yahweh, as we said a moment ago, takes us back to Exodus 3. And then God glorified that name in the plagues of Exodus, chapters 6 through 12. We're not going to consider the plagues uh, today, but the plagues were not just judgment on Pharaoh and the Egyptians, but on their gods as well, who could not defend them from Yahweh. So God is doing here what he does again and again throughout the entire Bible. He acts for the glory of his name and for the good of his people, even as they profane that name among the nations. Here's four passages that demonstrate this. Exodus 9:16. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Isaiah 48, 11, For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Ezekiel 29, But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. And lastly, Jeremiah 32, 20. You have shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and to this day in Israel and among all mankind and have made a name for yourself as at this day. God acts for the glory of his name. So why should we expect his work in our lives to be for someone else's glory? To be for our glory? 
We get bogged down in the questions of why God does what He does in our lives, particularly when we suffer, when we're angry or dissatisfied in God in light of hardship. What is that revealing in us? That we have fashioned comfort into an idol and God comes to knock it down. Our flesh likes to be made much of. So when we're criticized, misunderstood, or taken advantage of, we may ask God, why are you letting this happen to me? If you are asking God, why today? Come to the Bible. God is pursuing his own glory in saving and sanctifying his people. He was making a name for himself in all of this. And he did it in a way that no one expected by actually bringing judgment on his people and then sending himself into exile to fight their battles for them. Israel had used him like a lucky charm and lost. They lost the battle. They lost the priests. They lost the ark. They felt like they had lost God himself. The Philistines gave the glory to Dagon instead and made God into a trophy. So he knocked Dagon out too. He's answering the question raised by the name of Ichabod. Where is glory? Glory is with Yahweh. And Yahweh is doing just fine. The Philistines responded in a way that may seem a little odd to you. Look back at your text this morning in verse 5. They turned the humiliation of Dagon into what amounted to a new superstition. It apparently became a tradition for them not to step on the threshold since that is where Dagon's parts were found. So they would come in and play this game of step on a crack and, and break Dagon's back, if you will. Sadly, it seemed that practice may have crept into the lives of God's people in Judah. God promised to them in Zephaniah 1.9 that he would punish everyone who leaps over the threshold. Time and again, the people of God kept getting swept up into the sin and idolatry that was around them. In my own life, I've found that idolatry is easy for me to spot in places like India. But it's like it can be camouflaged in our own context where it's right in front of us and we miss it entirely. For those of you who have kids in Sunday school, this unit they have been memorizing a question and answer about idolatry. I'm not going to put any of them on the spot right now. I will give the question and the answer. The question is, what is idolatry? And the answer is, idolatry is a sin of the heart in which we love and value something else above God. When we think about idolatry that way, we can begin to see it all around us. The world that we live in worships sex, money, entertainment, and possessions. Americans are taught to worship personal autonomy, being real, being authentic. We hear things like, speak your truth, you do you. We're told faith is personal, private, and subjective. We're prone to glorify comfort and ease. We're too easily convinced that we deserve better. Better than what we have. And we're inundated with false gospels that would seek to put God's stamp of approval on all of it. In the Western world, idolatry often amounts to the worship of self. And it creeps into our lives in ways that we don't expect. 
I want you to see this in Colossians 3, 5. It says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and get this, covetousness, which is idolatry. To desire what we do not have is to be discontent with the person and provision of God. And the Bible says that is idolatry. So while putting food and flowers out in little boxes for statues might not resonate with your experience, what about envy? Check your heart for where you desire what you do not have to the point where you are dissatisfied in God. In light of that, to flee from idolatry then is to flee from anything that we would elevate above God in our desires and our affections. We cannot serve two masters. 1 Samuel 5 shows us that you can't prop up God next to and underneath anything or anyone else and hope that he will sit there quietly and serve your gods. He comes with a sword to do battle with whatever we would displace him with because he's jealous for his own name. But the glory that God pursues in all of this is connected to redeeming his people. He didn't just fight Dagon and the Philistines. He fought them for his people. He knocks down idols for his glory and for our good. So then the discipline of God on us, his people, is likely to be painful. But he's glorifying himself by conforming us into the image of Jesus. That is how God has chosen to make his name known by renewing his people to look like his son. Sometimes the painful discipline we receive from the Lord is the pain of our idols' heads and hands being cut off. So Yahweh has triumphed. He's won the heavyweight title. And in verses 6 through 12, he's going to throw himself a parade. Look with me in verses 6 through 12, and we'll see the Lord in judgment. Notice the repetition in this section of the hand of the Lord. The hand of the Lord was heavy. The hand of the Lord was heavy. The hand of the Lord was very heavy. It's mentioned four times, actually, in this section. God's heavy hand against the Philistines is a word picture that's used all over the Bible, meaning that God is active in judgment. Dagon has no hands. God cut them off. But the Lord's hand is heavy. Look at verse 6. It says, God terrified and afflicted the people of Ashdod and the surrounding region with tumors. We'll see in the next chapter that there's also going to be some connection with mice, which has led many to believe that this was bubonic plague. We don't know for certain, and that's not the main point here. Rather than being a lucky charm or a war trophy, God turned the ark into a weapon of mass destruction. And the comedy from verses 1 through 5, is actually going to continue. What the Philistines thought was a victory in battle turned into essentially a game of ark hot potato. The Philistines won the battle, but Yahweh has apparently won the war, and now he's going on a victory parade throughout all of Philistia, and he's going to wreak havoc everywhere he goes. And notice again how similar the Israelites and the Philistines are. Back in chapter 4, the Israelites call for to, uh, together a meeting of the elders who consult with the wicked priests who bring the ark into battle. The Philistines also call for a meeting of their lords, and they're going to get their religious leaders involved in chapter 6. And poor Gath drew the short straw. 
So the hot potato is passed from Ashdod to Gath with the same results, terror and tumors. In all of this, it seems the Philistines have some awareness that it's actually the Lord who's against them. In verse 7, they admit that it's the Lord's hand at work. And they're actually on to something here. Believer or unbeliever, Christian or atheist or Hindu or whatever else, God is sovereign over your life. It's going to take the Philistines until the next chapter to really understand this. They're going to develop a test to figure out if this was all a coincidence or if Yahweh was responsible for their suffering. And we'll see that next week. But things are so bad here in chapter 5 that their first instinct is to just pass the ark along like a hot potato to the next city down the line. Because apparently the God of Israel has not been conquered after all. So we have this parade route that goes now from Gath to Ekron, probably with a note stuck on it that says, here you go, no take backs. We don't want it back. And the people of Ekron apparently see this coming. They know the playground rules too. And they are not very keen on receiving the ark as seeing it now as only a death omen. So the elders of the Philistines are called together for a second time and they begin drawing up plans to just rid themselves of the ark for good so that Yahweh wouldn't kill all of them. Look at verse 12. Those who didn't die in Ekron were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Headless Dagon can't hear the cries of the Philistines, but Yahweh can. So I want to ask you this morning, who are you crying out to for deliverance? It may not be a false god in the proper sense that you bow down and worship, that you present it with fruit or flowers of sort of sacrifice or offering. That is a form of idolatry, but not the only one. It may be the balance of your bank account. It might be a relationship you're in. It might be the behavior of your children in public. I thank you, God, that I am not like that person in Walmart wearing their kid out by the garden section. I've seen it. You've seen it. Some of us have done it. It might be your reputation. It might be your job. It might be your possessions. It might be any and all of those things that you don't have, but you covetously wish that you did have. None of those things are sufficient to deliver you from the hand of God. In judgment. But God is willing to stay his hand of judgment and save you in his mercy. And the way that mercy is made available to us is actually patterned here for us in 1 Samuel chapter 5. And I don't want you to miss this. For the sake of his own glory, both in judgment and in deliverance, God went into exile in place of his people to fight their battles for them. God had already warned them in the Old Testament that their unrepentant sins would bring about his judgment and they faced the prospect of losing the land entirely. And the rest of the Old Testament bears that out. They eventually are conquered and lose the land. But notice here what God has done. He sent himself out of the land. He exiled himself to do battle for the sake of his people in spite of their sins. He is bearing the covenant curse for them. We're not going to read it this morning, but I would encourage you sometime soon to go back and read Genesis 15. See the account 
of God's covenant with Abram and this scene of the flaming torch and the smoking fire pot that moves between the pieces of the sacrifices as God made that covenant with Abram. At that time, cutting an animal in half and passing between them was symbolic of this covenant promise. It was essentially saying, as this animal has been cut in half, so may that happen to me should I break this covenant. And in the scene with Abram, it is not Abram passing between the pieces of the animal. It's symbolized by the presence of God doing so. The message to Abram was the same as the message to Israel here in 1 Samuel. God alone would bear the covenant curse for his people, even to the point of death. And this is precisely what Christ has done. The fact that the Son of God humbled himself to take on flesh at all was an exile from the glory and majesty that he had from eternity past. He stepped into flesh and was in exile from the very people into which he came, even from his own family. Isaiah 53 says he was despised and rejected by men. John 1 says his own people did not recognize or receive him. His friends abandoned him at the hour of his greatest need. On the cross, see what happened to Jesus. He is taken from the city. He is brought to Calvary. He is set up on the cross The Israelites and the Philistines in 1 Samuel are just a picture of the Jews and the Romans in the Gospels. The unbelieving Jews just paid lip service to God and rejected their Messiah. And the pagan Romans believed that Jesus was just another conquered enemy, a trophy to be displayed to anyone who would oppose Caesar. And then bearing the full weight of sin, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the agony of the cross, making propitiation for our sins, God's hand of judgment fell not on us, but on Jesus, that we might be spared. Jesus bore the curse of the covenant in bearing our sins. He was exiled in death. He was exiled from glory. He was exiled from people. He was exiled from his own father. He was exiled from life. But just like in 1 Samuel 5 with the ark in the temple, what a difference a couple of nights makes. On the third day, it is not Christ bowing before death. The risen Christ has cut the head and hands off of sin. 1 Samuel 5 is the gospel. Before the sermon today, this is what we sang. Now the curse, it has been broken. Jesus paid the price for me. Full the pardon he has offered. Great the welcome that I receive. Death was once my great opponent. Fear once had a hold on me. But the son who died to save us rose that we would be free indeed. Death is dead. Christ is risen. It was finished upon that cross. So the story of the ark's exile was prompted by that question back in chapter 4. This is the counter-narrative to where is glory. And it's a story, it's a path that leads to Jesus. We might say that the New Testament ark ark narrative is essentially Hebrews 1.3, Romans 5.8, Galatians 3.13, and Ephesians 2.10 all mashed up together to say something like this. 
God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ, who is the radiance of the glory of God, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He saved us by his grace and not our works so that no one may boast. So first, I want to address anyone in here who is not trusting in Christ. Whether you realize it or not, the Bible says that you are an exile. Ephesians 2.12 says that outside of Christ, you are separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The judgment that's pictured here in 1 Samuel is just a foretaste of the fury of God's wrath against sin that will be poured out by the heavy hand of God on those who do not repent and believe. And in hearing all of this, there is a temptation that you may want to add Jesus to whatever else in your life that really brings you joy and really brings you satisfaction. To add Jesus to your collection. You may be tempted to add Jesus to whatever good works you might do in order to be justified. Yes, I've got Jesus, but look at all of my works. He's not a trophy for your collection. He is a treasure. I want to urge you to forsake every other hope for salvation and eternal life and cast your hope entirely on the finished work of Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection for your sins, exiled so that you would not be. Cling to Jesus as your greatest treasure and your soul's reward. Cling to his promises, not only to forgive you, but to love you with an everlasting love and to raise you up on the last day. He promises that he will never cast out those who come to him. Jesus says he literally will not exile you. Repent of your sin and trust in Jesus alone to save you. Or to put it another way, pick a hand. The heavy hand of judgment or the nail-pierced hand of Christ. You will receive one or the other. To those of us who are believers in Jesus, we're exiles too, but in a different sense. Hebrews says that God's people are strangers and exiles, not from God, but in this world. So we have to guard against getting too comfortable here. It's to be expected that you and I would feel a little strange in a foreign country, as I did in India. But God forbid that we feel right at home in a culture that glorifies the self, that reduces God to a matter of preference, and rejects the word of God as outdated and irrelevant. It is good and right that Christians look increasingly weird in a world that is opposed to God. I want you to hear how all of these things come together in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What does this mean for us in practice? Three points of application quickly as we close. First, mind your worship. Mind your worship. I don't mean just showing up here on Sundays and checking off the worship box, although you should show up here on Sundays and worship with your church family. It is right and good that we gather together. But that is not all we mean when we say mind your worship. We mean that we are ascribing worth to God or something in everything that we do. 
The worship of God is to value God as our greatest treasure. And this is certainly expressed as we gather each week, but to sing on Sundays only to live in sin when we leave is not genuine worship. In fact, living in the passions of the flesh that Peter warns against here is essentially self-worship. Self-gratification amounts to self-glorification. Because it says, well, why shouldn't I give in to the passions of my flesh? I'm God after all. Why should the God of the Bible have anything to say to me? He can sit here next to me and beneath me as long as he's quiet and as long as he remembers his place. Check your heart for idols, for misplaced desires and affections that wage war against your soul. Examine your life for where you are glorifying yourself by gratifying yourself. Ask God to use the sword of his word to cut off the heads of any and every idol in your heart. The good news is he's already overcome the power of sin through Christ, so you can wage war against sin in that sense because the battle has been won for you. Fight the battle against sin from the victory of Christ. We want God to receive the glory, so we mind our worship. Second, mind your witness. Mind your witness. Peter says, keep your conduct among unbelievers honorable. If you are in Christ, his name is on you. Don't profane it in front of your unbelieving family and neighbors. Let the gospel be what offends people, not being a jerk for Jesus. Christians are called evildoers for any number of reasons. Because we know what a man and a woman is. Because we know what marriage is. Because we oppose the murder of unborn children. Because we preach Jesus Christ alone as Lord. That's good. That's fine. But God forbid we live foolishly in front of a world that already thinks the gospel is foolishness. Instead, be humble. Be generous. Be kind. Be respectful. Be forgiving. Be patient. Get to know your neighbors. Serve them. Pray for them. Invite them into your home and let them see your life. Or better, let them see Christ in you. Invite them into your church and let them see the wisdom and goodness and love of God on display among his people. We want people to see our good deeds not for our praise, but for the glory of God, so we mind our witness. Lastly, we mind one another. Mind one another. The instruction here from Peter is not to a Christian, but to Christians, plural. We are strangers and exiles together. On that same trip to India... After leaving that man's home, we had a providential encounter with a Christian Indian pastor and his wife. Their home would not fit, well, it would fit on this stage. The stage is bigger than their home. They opened their modest home and pantry to a group of strangers they had never met before who had nothing in common with them except for Jesus. That's it. It turns out if you've got that in common with someone, you've got everything in common with them. The church is a foretaste of heavenly glory because we're strangers and exiles together. 
You and I have more in common with that man and his wife than your unbelieving family. Do you believe that? This means we need each other. That's why we take church membership seriously. You need to belong to and submit to a local body of Christ in which you are encouraged and built up and matured, where you serve and are served by others. If you are a member, you've got to actually function as a member within the body according to the gifts you've been given. First, you've got to be here. You can't function as a healthy church member if you're constantly exiled away from the body. And second, our goal is to equip you for the work of ministry. If you've got arms, we need them holding babies next door. We've got two more coming next month. We want God to be glorified as we serve a practical need for our parents. It's God's glory and the good of His people. If you speak English, you are qualified for ESL. We want God to be glorified among people learning English around gospel conversations. That is for the glory of God and the good of people. Are you good at fixing things? Stuff around here breaks. Ask Randall Mills. He will tell you. We want God to be glorified as we steward our resources and property well so that we can meet and do ministry for God's glory and for the good of His people. Do you sing or play an instrument? Come talk to me. Let me put a vision in front of you of what it looks like to serve this church for God's glory in corporate worship. The glory of God, the good of God's people. You are gifted for the purpose of building up the body of Christ in love. Be here, serve here. This is also why we take church discipline so seriously. Christ's name is on us. People come to conclusions about Jesus Christ and the gospel by the way that we as his people live. In the church, we belong to Jesus and to each other. We're not lone wolves. We're exiles and strangers together. So to see brothers or sisters wander off into sin and to just let them go is like having your own hand cut off and pretending it's a flesh wound, all the while seeing Christ's name dragged through the mud and ignoring it. We want God to be glorified among us in this community. Therefore, we commit to one another. We submit to one another. We love and serve one another. We bear with one another. And when needed, we go after one another. We mind one another. The battle of God's people in exile, the battle against sin, and the battle for holiness is a battle for the glory of God in the gospel being proclaimed in the world. Our lives of holy service are tools in the hand of God as he sends us into enemy territory and kills our sin with the gospel for the glory of his name. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. You have loved us for the sake of your own glory we praise you that Christ was exiled, that we might be brought near. We praise you that in this, our time of exile, that we are not alone. We have the help that comes from your indwelling spirit, and we have the help that comes from the encouragement of your people to run the race with endurance and to be spurred on to love and good works. We pray you would use us for your glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.